Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Belkwell's Books. My name is Belkwell and I'm here today to talk to you about a book. Today's book is Nostromo by Joseph Conrad, first published in the year 1904. You may know Joseph Conrad as the author of Heart of Darkness, which is often taught in in high school, or at least it was when I was in high school. The most striking aspect of Nostromo is undoubtedly its setting. Not merely for the fact that it takes place in a fictionalized South American republic during the early 20th century, but the fact that this book about a fictionalized South American republic in the early 20th century was written by a Polish-born author living in England. It makes a certain sense that Conrad wrote about the Congo in Heart of Darkness. He did in fact spend a good deal of time there. And it also makes sense that he wrote stories set at sea, for he spent much time as a sailor. But South America was a place Conrad had only heard of and dreamed of. His vision of South America comes from stories he's heard, and the way these stories struck him. In the process of writing this novel, Conrad took it upon himself to reconstruct, through a combination of imagination and research, a world unfamiliar to him. However, much of Costaguana, which is the name of this republic, would have been immediately recognizable to Conrad. Aristocratic by nature, Conrad found it easy to settle into the class divides that characterize this republic, and it's notable that the novel is so heavily focused on first-generation European immigrants, for whom the rest of this society is merely an undifferentiated mass. They bring with them European sentiments, European political ideas, and a generally European way of thinking, which is often set at odds with their new environment. These characters inhabit the world of ideals, and their practical lives are centered around these intellectual principles, rather than the conditions that surround them. Charles Gold, the owner of the silver mine that puts the Occidental province of Costaguana on the map, pursues his business with a zeal that is not founded upon the allure of wealth, but instead as a means of avenging and, at the same time, overcoming his own genealogy. Martin de Coud gets involved in politics, not for power, but out of love for the outspoken and all-too-liberated young Antonia Avellanos. All these characters, with their conflicting ideals and varying levels of practical competency, are thrown into the town of Sulaco, and we watch as their dreams collide amidst revolution and civil war. The political situation of Costaguana is based on the secession of Panama from Colombia in 1903, backed by the United States' interest in the construction of the Panama Canal. This political situation constantly serves as a catalyst for major decisions in the lives of the characters, whose true natures are revealed by their reaction to external pressures and stresses. In the end, what unfolds is a novel that perfectly encapsulates Conrad's style of characterization and plotting. The characters' journeys interlock like gears in a finely tuned machine, culminating in moments of extreme dramatic coincidence and irony. It is no surprise that Conrad's style is often associated with drama, 
as in theater, and that he himself worked on several adaptations of his stories to stage. The hallmarks of careful plotting, bombastic characters, and deliberate manipulation of the audience are all present here. What the characters may lack in psychological depth, they make up for in their actions and dialogue, and the relative simplicity of their goals and motivations allow for wholly satisfying conclusions to their tales. Nostromo is the product of a wealth of imagination, a sympathetic ear, careful research, and a deep understanding of the dramatic and novelistic form, and is often considered Conrad's most compelling novel. In this episode, we will attempt to explore how and why all these aspects work together, and come away with a deeper understanding of the novel. According to Joseph Conrad, the origin of this story came from a tale he heard during his time as a sailor, about a man stealing an entire boatload of silver. Decades later, he encountered this tale a second time, this time in a book he was reading. He felt the urge to investigate the nature of this audacious thief. In order to tell the story of this thief, who would be later become Nostromo, Conrad had to construct a world in which the exploits of Nostromo were possible. Now, similarly to our episode on Jules Verne's novel, The Tribulations of a Chinese Man in China, I find myself in the odd position of investigating someone's depiction of a place they've never been to, as a person who has also never been to that place. In fact, it's quite likely that Conrad, through his research, is more knowledgeable about South America than I am. So, my intention here is not to compare Conrad's South America with the reality of South America, but to instead explore the town of Sulaco in the country of Costaguana on its own terms, and figure out what Conrad's depiction of South America tells us about the perspective from which he writes. What immediately strikes us about the environment we find ourselves in is the contrast between the elite, educated European society that we as readers gain access to and the general population that takes on the role of a mob that needs to be controlled or at the very least restrained by this elite class. It's always interesting to note, in a novel with a large cast, who gets to be a character. This will indicate to us the amalgamated general perspective of the novel. As I've alluded to, this novel is primarily about people in power and those connected with them. We can sense an aristocratic tendency in this distinction and also a racial one. The characters we follow are generally white, and were either born in Europe or born to European parents and have spent a good deal of their life there. These characters, therefore, are fundamentally disconnected with the country in which they live. Their life on this port town, where access to the United States and Europe by boat is almost easier than access to the rest of Costaguana across the mountains, only furthers this isolation. The political events that culminate in the revolution and civil war are essentially foreign to them, and their importance is primarily ideological. We are reminded of the wealthy residents of St. Petersburg, depicted in War and Peace, for whom the war that rages on to their south is purely an idea, 
something to discuss and hash out at dinner parties, but not lived. For the characters in this novel, politics itself is an ideal, because the question of whether the country is ruled well or not hinges on their ability to procure wealth. Of course, they don't say that part. Instead, they refer euphemistically to the ideals of freedom, this freedom being that of the free market and integration with the global trade system, which, in basically all cases, means exploitation of the poor and more money for the rich. In their eyes, the actual on-the-ground politics, including the military conflicts that proceed from it, is inane. It is the game of rabble-rousing, power-hungry fools. This perspective comes from the fact that their political interests do not include the actual polity of the country, but only that of their small, disconnected society. The book presents the general politics of South America as inherently chaotic and uncontrollable, a mess of warlords, bandits, and, of course, the crowds of peasants who make up their militias. This is a common trope when dealing with the victims of colonialism. The idea is that these people can't govern themselves, or that they're not ready to act civilized and therefore haven't earned the right to self-determination. This lawless environment of Costaguana allows for the type of heroism that is associated with the so-called freedom of the West. The story of a man who stole a boatload of silver is a quintessentially American story. One man working alone to perform audacious acts in a part of the world where the law hasn't taken on the same type of totalitarian control as was possible in Europe. This is the ideal of the Wild West. Well, in a general sense, this lawlessness and chaos is anathema to the ideals of European civilization, for that very reason, it holds a certain appeal to the European imagination. In Europe, this thief would be a criminal, but in the fantasy of South America, he can be a hero. Out of this concept, the anti-hero Nostromo, this novel's principal character, is born, and Conrad developed him into the man we see in this novel. Interestingly, what Conrad then does is subvert Nostromo's freedom. He is in fact constrained by his untenable position as a mediator between the wealthy and the workers they employ. And on a more personal level, Nostromo is constrained by the reputation he has had to cultivate in order to maintain this position, or that allowed him to occupy this position in the first place. Thus, the freedom of the West is denied as it is asserted. Even out on the frontiers, all individual agency is subsumed to the pressures of the environment. In trying to understand Conrad's depiction of the local inhabitants of Coast of Guana, those not involved in the wealthy European society of our main characters, it might help to refer to his most famous work, Heart of Darkness. That novella tells the story of a man named Kurtz, who ends up forming a sort of cult of personality among Africans in an unnamed location that is essentially the Belgian Congo. Obviously, given the setting, the book deals with the horrors of European colonialism, and contains vivid descriptions of the atrocities being committed upon the local population. The title sets up a bit of a subversion. 
the heart of darkness is made to seem to refer to the Congo River as an avenue that leads the white main character into the center of a continent full of black people. At the end of the novel, however, this idea is subverted with a reference to a different river, this time the Thames in England, leading to the heart of darkness that is London, the cultural and trading epicenter of European colonialism. Now, that whole thing will reasonably feel a little clumsy to modern readers, and I do think there's a real sense in which that novella confuses the victimhood of Europeans and the people they colonize. While Conrad certainly recognizes that the local Congolese are victims of colonialism, the emphasis of the story is on the way colonialism affects Europeans, namely the way it debases them and turns them into monsters. What's important here to us is the novella's perspective. The perspective of the local victims of colonialism is never centered. It's never given priority. They suffer, but they suffer in an abstract way that we don't get to fully explore. This is just as true of the local inhabitants of Costa Guana, many of which we can assume to be indigenous or mestizo, that is, of mixed indigenous and European heritage. When they appear, it is as a mob, an undifferentiated mass of humanity. We don't get any internal insight into what the world of Costa Guana means to them. What I'm not saying here is that it's Conrad's responsibility to tell that story, or that him not telling that story is a moral failing. What I'm saying is that Conrad doesn't tell that story, and he chooses not to tell that story, and this choice tells us about the perspective Conrad is bringing into his depiction of this South American republic. The narration, while omniscient, is constrained by the characters it follows, and centers their worldview. Thus, the tragic elements of the novel, too, those elements that elicit our sympathies, are restricted to the fates the European characters we come to know. Conrad's sympathy for the secession of the Occidental province of Costa Guana might have something to do with his family history, with his father being actively involved in the quest for Polish independence. In fact, the date of the Declaration of Independence for the newfound Occidental Republic in this novel, the 3rd of May, is also the date on which the 1793 Constitution of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was adopted, which led directly to their later annexation by Russia. The evocation of this specific date adds a bit of a personal element, and might explain why Conrad feels such a sympathy for the characters he follows in this novel. Thus, the final result here is somewhat ambiguous. The novel is clearly critical of the ruling class of Sulaco, and via Nostromo's story, of the corrupting power of ill-begotten wealth. At the same time, this criticism is not done out of sympathy with the victims of their actions, but sympathy with the individuals that make up the ruling class themselves. Of course, it's fine to feel sympathy for people. In fact, it's good to feel sympathy for people, and it's true that an extreme imbalance of wealth and power is probably not good for anyone involved, in the end. 
However, the fact that he emphasizes the tribulations of the wealthy European population, while ignoring or demeaning the individuality and agency of the oppressed, reveals to us a glimpse of the perspective Conrad is bringing to his imaginary South America. When a book is named after a character, we have to assume that this character is central to the book's themes, whether they are technically the main character or not. In a previous episode, we analyzed Damien by Herman Hesse, which is actually about a young man named Emile Sinclair. Similarly, this book named Nostromo, although it contains a character named Nostromo, does not actually follow him as a prospective character until near the end. In fact, for much of the novel, you would not be altogether incorrect in considering him as something of a minor character. However, when we look back on the novel as a whole, we see that Nostromo is at the heart of this novel. Not only does he make the events of the plot possible, but his story exemplifies many of the themes central to the book. Nostromo's true name is Giovanni Battista Fidanza, and he is an Italian sailor, who finds himself settling in Sulaco after a career at sea. He works for Captain Mitchell at the Oceanic Steam Navigation Company, also known as OSN, which operates the port at Sulaco, the most well-trafficked port in the fictional country of Costa Guana. Sulaco itself is located in the Occidental province of Costa Guana and is separated from the rest of the country by a mountain range, although plans are in place for the construction of a railroad that will finally allow efficient transportation between the two areas. Nostromo's job is to act as a manager and foreman of the large company of laborers that make up the OSN. He has a force of personality that allows him to ingratiate himself both with the average worker and the wealthy society people that own the businesses in town. Aside from his official role at OSN, he is generally employed as a mediator between the local labor force and this wealthy class, with his allegiance having drifted over time from the former toward the latter. In the end, however, both sides are merely tools for the construction of Nostromo's reputation as a man who can get things done, an all-purpose hero whose name will live on in the annals of Costaguana's history. On a more personal level, Nostromo has struck up a friendship with fellow Italian Giorgio Viola, the proprietor of a small hotel just outside of town. Viola is a former Garibaldino, that is, a follower of the revolutionary, one of Italy's fathers of the fatherland, Giuseppe Garibaldi, who was also involved in the independence movement in Uruguay, and after whom a mountain not far from my house is named. Viola lives with his wife and two daughters, and mourns the loss of his son, for whom he, and especially his wife, viewed Nostromo as a sort of surrogate. Similar to Garibaldi's pragmatic alliance with monarchists for the sake of Italian independence, Nostromo has formed an alliance with capitalists in the form of Charles Gold, the English owner of Sulaco's silver mine, and Captain Mitchell, the co-owner of the OSN. 
Throughout the story, he struggles to reconcile this alliance with his almost familial connection to the Viola family, whose eldest daughter they expect him to one day marry. Nostromo's most significant dramatic moment in the novel centers around abandoning Mrs. Viola on her deathbed in order to take on an escapade that will assure his glory as well as solidify his usefulness to these powerful figures. Because of these interlocking allegiances, as well as his aloof nature, Nostromo is seen as something of an enigma to all the other characters we meet. They all see in him something of what they want to see. Viola obviously sees in him the memory of his dead son, while Gold and Mitchell emphasize his almost superhuman ability to wrangle the dock workers for their purposes. None of them, however, are able to gain much insight into his true nature, if he can even be said to have one. The only person who seems to be able to see through Nostromo in any fashion is Martin Decoud, a young idler infatuated with Antonia Avellanos, the daughter of a passionate Republican political theorist. That is, Republican in the general sense, not to be confused with the American political party. This infatuation turns Decoud into a newspaper editor and then a politician, with a revolutionary zeal for the reactionary movement that is the secession of the Occidental province from the rest of Costaguana. What I mean by that is that this secession is heartily supported by the interests of the American and European capitalists who have invested in the gold-silver mine, Sulaco's main source of wealth, as well as the railroad that is meant to encourage foreign trade. Martin Decoud's naive political enthusiasm makes him an apposite tool for these interests, which ends up placing him in a similar situation as Nostromo. This being the case, Decoud attempts to understand Nostromo's purposes, and in an ironic case of viewing in others what we can't see in ourselves, comes to understand that Nostromo's primary motivation is not idealistic or even ideological, but merely a personal quest for fame. During the climax of the story, Decoud and Nostromo find themselves on a boat laden with silver as part of a plan to save the capital of the gold-silver mine from an incoming insurrectionist force. The plan is to meet up with a frigate heading north in order to ensure the safe delivery of the silver. Decoud's reasons for participating in such a plan are manifold, on the one hand, he needs to escape Sulaco, because this incoming military force is led by a politician who he has incessantly attacked in his newspaper's articles. At the same time, he wishes to use this opportunity to further the goal of independence for the Occidental province. The latter reason is closely connected to his true goal, which is to impress the girl he likes. On their way to sea, their boat ends up sinking, and they decide to bury the silver on the Great Isabel, one of the two islands that sit in the middle of the bay just outside of Sulaco. Decoud can't go back to shore for fear of his life, so Nostromo decides to leave him there while he returns to town, with the promise of sending back for him once everything has blown over. Unfortunately, Decoud is not the kind of man who can be left alone with his own thoughts. 
he is simply unable to exist without the attention of others, even for a short time. Here we see the essential contrast between Nostromo and Decoud. While Nostromo seeks glory in order to manifest in others his own high estimation of himself, Decoud instead relies on others to provide the esteem that he himself lacks. Nostromo believes that he is an amazing man and a hero. All he needs to do is show others this truth. Decoud, on the other hand, believes himself to be a nobody, and uses the approval of others to try to convince himself that he's not. It does not take long then for Decoud, alone on the island, to completely lose his mind. Isolated from the political goal he has taken on as his life's purpose, he can find no justification for his own existence. In a futile gesture, he takes the boat out to sea, and there, in the vast emptiness, takes his own life. It's clear that Decoud used his political ideal to fill the empty shell that is his interior life. The actual content of this ideal is irrelevant, or rather, it is entirely predicated on the people he surrounds himself with. His love for Antonia means that it finds its manifestation in the project of Sulaco's independence, but we can imagine it could just as easily have gone in many other directions. Decoud believes himself to be politically motivated, but the actual content of his political beliefs are less important than the mere presence of political beliefs. Nostromo does not allow himself to be swayed by such ideals. His internal life is full. It's full of himself. He's full of himself. All he needs anyone else to do is recognize this fullness of himself. Therefore, he acts, on a subjective level, apolitically. Obviously, his actions on a material level have dramatic political consequences, but his ideals have no social and therefore no political content. It's just about manifesting his own heroism. In the end, both of these characters consider themselves free, independent actors, enforcing their own will on the world. However, both of them are actually operating as agents of capital, used as tools by the wealthy ruling class of Sulaco for their own political ends. In this way, they are both tragic characters, whose very agency is stripped away from them through the course of the story. However, unlike Decoud, who dies without ever understanding his true self, Nostromo eventually comes to understand that his desire for heroism is being exploited, and tricks everyone into believing that the silver has been lost at sea, all the while treating the hoard he buried at the island as his own personal treasury. Over time, this treasure itself begins to fill up the void within Nostromo that he had previously filled with egoism. His reputation remains as a sort of shell, but inside he's changed. He no longer lives audaciously, but stealthily, surreptitiously visiting the island at night in order to collect a few ingots here and there to sell at distant ports. His fear of being discovered, and of having his reputation destroyed by such an ignominious act, 
becomes his sole preoccupation. Before, when he had a little, he freely spent it or gave it away, as this sort of charity and profligacy cemented his esteem in the eyes of the working-class people he relied on for support. Now that his reputation is secured by his heroic acts during the revolution, and his material needs are taken care of by the treasure, his only concern becomes not losing all that he has gained. In this way, Nostromo has simply constructed a new trap for himself. Previously a slave to the wealth of others, now he is the slave of his own wealth. His individual heroism, in fact his entire individuality, falls to pieces in the face of capital. At the end of the novel, he attempts a new adventure, an escape from the treasure, from the town of Sulaco, into the vast unknown, the world of his ideals. Just as he stands on the precipice of this new life, he is killed, as a result of a comical misunderstanding. This ending is abrupt, a tad ridiculous, and maybe a little bit cute, but at the same time it perfectly suits the life of a man so bandied about by forces beyond his control. Nostromo is the ultimate individualist hero, and yet we find in the end that he has no agency at all, and perhaps never did. It matters not what went on inside his head or what he thought he was doing, because he wasn't the one pulling the strings. I mentioned earlier Damien by Herman Hesse, which is the most recent book we've covered extensively on the show. Damien tells the story of a young man named Emile Sinclair, and it tells this story entirely from Emile's perspective, which is an extremely subjective and introspective one. Whether that book resonates with a reader or not depends massively on whether they relate to Emile, either from having a similar temperament, having experienced similar struggles, or just by being pulled in by the way he tells his story. It is clear to anyone who has read any of Hess's work beyond Damien that he himself sympathizes greatly with Emile, and that Emile's concerns often mirror his own. In this way, Damien is an incredibly open book. It expresses a desire to connect with the reader on a personal and emotional level. After reading the book, we feel like we've met someone, and to a certain extent, have come to know them. This is in stark contrast to a book like Nostromo. Edward Said, in his book about Joseph Conrad, suggests that Conrad almost hides behind his novels, using the fact that he is writing in a foreign language in a very deliberate and artificial style to keep the reader away from himself. What we see in Nostromo is characters being looked at. The glimpses we get into their interior selves rarely feel personal. Instead, they are tied to the objective material environment in which they live. At the end of the novel, we feel as if we don't really know any of these characters personally. We only know about them biographically. 
What this means is that all these perspectives, all these dreams and ideals are not self-contained entities, but instead parts of the greater world of the novel. The dreams of the characters in Nostromo do not exist in isolation. They bounce off each other, they change each other, and they create each other. Nostromo himself is a character who cannot exist without being looked at. His very essence is tied to how people perceive him. He spends his whole life on stage, trying to forge a reputation for himself. This is why we are introduced to him via the perspectives of others. He is the perspective of others. He doesn't seem to have a complete inner self, or if he does, it's entirely inaccessible to us. Nostromo is the extreme case, but all the characters in the novel are like this. Unlike Emile Sinclair, who exists in a populous and disconnected society in which he can simply disappear if he likes, these characters exist in a small, isolated town where they must always be playing whatever role they have taken on. This makes the idea of them even having a true self suspect. We can see explicitly in the novel that even their internal ideals are subject to the world around them. Their very environment embodies this fact. Costaguana, being a South American country, is at the whim of colonial empires. From the Spanish, Portuguese, British, and Dutch colonizers who originally invaded the continent, to the emerging economic superpower that is the United States. The characters in this novel are of European heritage. Many of them were born in Europe, or at least spent a good deal of time there. Most of them don't treat Costa Guana as a true home, but as a foreign environment that they are trying to craft into their home. Their attempts to do this are foiled on one hand by the so-called rabble, primarily made up of locals who see Costa Guana as their real home, and also by the Western powers themselves, for whom the entire South American continent is a mere pile of exploitable resources and labor. This is a political situation where an agency is quite hard to come by, even for those with access to immense capital. Charles Gold, the richest man in the story, whose ideals dovetail quite nicely with the American and European capitalists looking to exploit Costaguana's resources, still finds himself at the whim of the country's incessant civil wars, brought about by deliberately sustained instability and poverty. The fact that he, specifically, wins in the end is not a sure thing. His backers will always win, because they don't have any real stake in the game and could easily back someone else. But Charles Gold, being on the continent itself, is caught up in its vast, complicated system. Charles Gold himself doesn't care, in any real sense, about silver, or about getting rich from silver. His desire for wealth is based on spite and vengeance. The vicissitudes of South American politics literally killed his father. But even that is not the most important thing. What's important to Charles Gold is proving that he is stronger than his father was. His father told him to give up on the mine, and Charles took that as a challenge. 
whose material actions are all for the sake of his external reputation, as a man who can survive against all odds. What we see, as readers of the novel, is a Charles Gold who is unflappable and calm in the midst of pressure. We see him purely in his social aspect, because even alone with his wife, he continues to play his role. Unlike Emile's confused and complicated goal of becoming his true self, Charles has a very simple goal. He wants to run a silver mine, and not die in the process. His inner life is not infinite and transcendent. It is directly tied to the material conditions of his external life. This is not to say that the characters in this novel lack personality. They have plenty of personality. They are each unique and find themselves in unique situations. They are often funny. Captain Mitchell's indignation at having his watch taken away when he is arrested by an invading general near the end of the novel stands out as a particularly comic moment. But these people are all actors. They are all characters in a grand theater. And though they have these small touches that remind us of reality, they don't feel real, not in the way that Emile Sinclair does. This book is about watching an event unfold. It is about a political situation, the means by which this situation is brought about and resolved, and the consequences of this resolution. No one's soul is at stake here. What's at stake are resources, reputations, and political agency. The book's final section centers on the transfer of silver ingots. Charles Gould and all those with interests in his mind are trying to keep the silver shipment out of the hands of the incoming army. This silver is literal capital and also political capital. Whatever anyone's ideals are, the side that holds the silver, in the end, will come out on top. As we've mentioned previously, the plan is to send the silver out on a boat manned by Nostromo and Martin Decoud in order to meet up with a frigate out at sea, which will then transport the silver to the USA, capital's safest home. When the plan fails and the boat ends up hidden away on the Great Isabel, the silver takes on a new form. On the macro level, it simply disappears, existing only as an abstract note in a ledger somewhere. Its absence becomes its essence. What's important about the silver is the fact that it didn't end up in the hands of the rival political faction. But the silver still remains in its corporeal state, in its double life, as the personal property of Nostromo, who had hidden it away on the island. This is the foundation on which he builds his new reputation and his newfound agency. On both the macro and micro level, the silver becomes a shorthand for power, the power to enforce one's will on the world. In the grand scheme, the ideals of Charles Gold and of Nostromo are nothing compared to the sheer force of this power, this power that is stuff in its most pure sense, rocks that we pull out from the mass of the earth. This is what makes Nostromo, to my eyes, a very impersonal novel. 
It centers around quite a small town, but its emphasis on movements and elements that are geographical in nature gives it a grand scale. It is a story of, as Conrad notes in Part 3, Chapter 11, quote, material changes swept along in the train of material interests, end quote. The landmass that these characters live on is the deciding factor in their fate. It is no accident that the novel begins with a geographical description of the bay and the mountains, the bay that allows for trade with the outside world, and the mountains that isolate Sulaco from the rest of Costa Guana, and provide the silver on which it develops. Sulaco is a function of its geography, and everybody who lives there just has to deal with it. It's obvious that this is how reality works. I mean, geography is always a factor in historical events, because it's the very stuff from which our lives are built. However, in fiction, its importance is a matter of priority. In Nostromo, it's fundamental to everything. On top of this, our characters are at the whims of that most inhuman of entities, capital. Gently pulling the strings behind the scenes are the great capitalists of Europe and the United States, to whom all must bow in the end. The geography of Sulaco makes it the perfect target of these forces, and in the end, it is this combination of geography and capital that strips these characters of their individual agency. Nostromo is a story about the inhabitants of Sulaco living in a place in exactly the situation that Sulaco is in. It is about the way their ideals crumble in the face of this situation, and the ways in which they try to reconcile themselves to this fact. The futility of their ideals when faced with such an inhuman machine is a recipe for ultimate despair, and this is what they are struggling to ignore. Perhaps this is what Decoud sees when he finds himself alone on the island. Perhaps this is what Nostromo realizes as he attempts to embark on his final adventure. You can try to run, but there is no escape from fatal contingency. The fatalism of this novel, a product of its emphasis on material forces such as geography and the movement of capital, does, of course, reveal a certain amount of pessimism. The book is a tragedy, that most fatalistic of genres, and so it's no surprise that we are left at the end with this slightly empty, hollow sort of feeling. The book reveals to us just how little our ideals truly mean. We can contrast this with our final analysis of Dream of the Red Chamber by Cao Shui-Qin, which we covered in a previous episode. Both stories are tragedies, and both tell the tale of a society, in Nostromo, the wealthy class of a town, in Red Mansions, the Jia family, at the verge of collapse, which, via forces beyond their power, is suddenly restored in a slightly new form although not without losing something along the way. Dream of Red Mansions contains an even more explicit fatalism, with the fates of its main characters being literally written and revealed in a dream in an early chapter. 
However, this fatalism is then offset by the novel's metaphysics, its depiction of heaven as the home of eternal souls, and the source of the constant regeneration of good and virtue in our world. What sets these two books apart, then, is not their wildly differing settings or styles, but their perspectives on human agency and human ideals. In Red Mansions, they are eternal and unchangeable. In Nostromo, ideals and virtues are contingent on the forces of the material world. Thus, each book leaves us with a fundamentally different impression. For all that Nostromo contains, there is very little in the way of hope. There is not much stock put into ideals. Their very origin is suspect, and their applicability to the material world rendered negligible. Nostromo is a novel of chaos, where plans fall through or succeed based not on their theoretical solidity, but based on the many contingencies of many different plans all colliding with each other. This chaos is the fundamental material situation of humanity. There is no freedom in our minds, no eternal virtue in heaven. We're just stuck here, at the whim of the infinite inhumanity that surrounds us. I didn't mean to end the show on such a dour note. After all, Nostromo is not all doom and gloom, it is a highly imaginative work in which a masterful author crafts a place he has never been and constructs an entire society out of its interesting characters and their complex relationships. The culmination of this interlocking system into dramatically charged moments is thrilling, and many of these moments have stuck with me for quite a long time. The book is also quite funny in an understated way due to its often ironic tone when dealing with the sometimes ridiculousness of its characters. Like I mentioned above with Tribulations of a Chinese Man in China, part of my interest in novels like this is as historical objects, what they reveal to us about how one culture views another. We are able to see how these perspectives have changed over time and also the many ways in which they haven't. The South America depicted in this story is not a far cry from the ways that South America is depicted in English-language fiction and non-fiction today, and it is important to understand where these narratives come from, and what perspective they show, and how they can skew our own perspective. All in all, Nostromo is a fascinating work, well worth exploring, either as a reflection of a singular personality or the perspective of a broader culture. It is not only a joy to read on a moment-to-moment -moment level due to its impeccable style and construction, but its grand scope and what it means to tell us about human life gives us much to think about long after we finish reading. I hope you've enjoyed this episode on Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. If you have any questions or thoughts or ideas about the book or any book we've covered on the show, I'd encourage you to write in to balkwellbooks at gmail.com, or you can leave a comment on the YouTube video or on balkwell.online, which is my website where I post writing every two weeks. 
Speaking of every two weeks, I'm making a slight change to the format or the schedule for this show. Up to now, we have been doing these sort of main big scripted episodes uh, once a month and then with mini episodes in between. Uh, but I just keep missing that deadline and it's it's not working. So what we're going to do is the mini episodes will now be the sort of default episode of Balquell's books, and they will be coming out every two weeks, every other Tuesday, uh, very consistently, so you'll actually know what day the show is coming out instead of it just appearing on a random day twice a month. I will still be creating, uh, writing these uh, larger scripted episodes, just uh, slightly less often. So I'll try to sort of, I'll just insert them into the schedule as I finish them. I'm aiming for every three to four episodes to be a big one like this. So every six to eight weeks. Um, I think this new schedule, it'll it'll just work better for, for you as the reader or the listener. Um, more consistency in the schedule. You get more episodes probably. And for me... Uh, just gives me a bit more time to work on things, and I'm not as constrained by the schedule. I mean, when you make a schedule for yourself, I make a deadline for yourself, and you're consistently not meeting it, even though you set it yourself, clearly something has to change. So this means I'll have more time to work on my novels that I'm trying to write, one of which, Only in Dreams, is available on Amazon for you to purchase and enjoy. So that's the news about that. The music for this show is by Max Miller, a.k.a. Fun Bill. Thank you for the music. If you enjoy the show, please recommend it to a friend or rate and review on any sort of podcast service. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.